0: Hello, and welcome to The Robot Podcast. I'm Fran Scott, presenter, maker, and massive engineering fan. In each episode, we'll be finding out how robots are pushing the boundaries of possibility and supporting businesses to become more sustainable. From the way we farm our food to how we package it, from 3D printing ocean waste into furniture to transforming cars into pieces of art, robotic technology is transforming our industries to reach an innovative and planet-friendly future. Today's episode is sadly the last of Series 3 and it has absolutely flown by. We have spoken to so many fascinating people across the last five episodes and today is no different. In fact you're going to hear from some of the brilliant interviewees again. In this Megamix episode we are going to look back at some of the conversations we've had throughout the series and share some previously unreleased clips. Conversations that we loved but just didn't have time to include the first time around across this series we've had our eye on sustainability asking how robots are helping the world to become more sustainable and in today's megamix episode we're looking to the future How are some of our previous guests addressing these next steps, both of the planet and of their industries? And where do robots fit into all of this? Now, if we remember back to the second episode in this series, that was focused on the topic of sustainability and robotics. And we started that episode with the fabulous Shivy Jervis, a futurologist with a particular interest in digital innovation. And as well as our conversation that we had on sustainability and how technology is absolutely vital to how we address the current climate problems, Shivy and I got talking about the future of robotics and how it will impact our world, starting with the world of work.
1: Absolutely. So I'd say first, if we think about robots to do with healthcare, Systems that are allowing surgeons to conduct surgery remotely where surgeon A is the one with the patient, right? But that surgeon, Fran, is not the world-class expert or the person who created this pioneering technique that could save this child's life. So they reach out to surgeon B who's across the world and can't hope to fly across or the patient can't afford it, you know, in the 24 hours needed to operate on that person. So then robots come into play. And that's where we're seeing more and more jobs where actually through robotics to the Internet of Things and AI, this kind of little trio of enablers, actually you could have someone across the world be able to remotely oversee or even be involved in life-saving surgery. And that's one area that this starts to come alive is we actually see not just surgeons, but paramedics, we see nurses start to understand how to use some of these systems. I think the second is that although we see robots automating tedious jobs, as we call it, or jobs that have a repetition to it, actually, it will also create more jobs than it displaces. So when we think of robotic arms in the supermarkets, that's not the same as a full-body, six-foot-two robot robot hurtling through our offices, you know, shoving us out of our jobs, going out of my way. It just isn't that way. So even when we think of bricklaying or manufacturing, actually, it's not going to displace the jobs that people do need to do. I have someone laying out my driveway right now and redoing that. Would I feel comfortable if these were all robots out there making that happen? Probably not. However, if the human, if these lovely workmen outside actually were able to make use of robotic instruments or robotic equipment that meant the job was safer for them, faster for us, cheaper for everyone, I wouldn't say no. So I think this hybrid working system where humans and robots work together, it is possible, even though some naysayers say it's got to be one or the other. And even, for example, when we think of robots more in the form of an intangible invisible enabler, like an AI system, a piece of code, let's say. It can handle a lot of cold contacts and cold uh, sales over the online system when customers contact a business in the form of bots, for example. It could be the first port of call for people instead of them waiting 20 minutes on the phone, whether it's your bank, your insurance company, your phone company, It could actually have a really, really big role in helping customer service people who are essentially helping everyday consumers or businesses do their jobs. Better, And then you've also got, for example, roles being created in the justice system when we're talking about detecting crime or injury, when we talk about in insurance or in law to mitigate situations as well, to be able to scan legal documents at 300 times the speed. And I think here we've got the fact that it doesn't displace the person. It simply does the part that would take the person a week. It does it in three hours. And so whoever's doing the job effectively can stay in work and actually get more done even. And finally, Fran, I would say if I had to give you examples of slightly unusual roles from the world of robotics, one of the areas that I'm actually looking at is a robot ethicist or a digital ethicist. So someone that actually looks at and questions the moral codes of conduct when we're thinking of using robotics. So I think we're going to see People do this, you know, as a consultant or advisor who will go in and say, here's the best use of robots and automation so that it doesn't negatively impact the communities in which they operate.
0: So that is how we work. But in our retail episode, we look at how robotics are also changing the nature of how we shop. And As someone that's not a natural shopper, let's say, I was particularly intrigued about how this will change in the future. And I spoke to Manuel Garcia from Spanish design brand Nagami about how robots in stores are changing how both customers and retailers will utilise the shop floor. But we did also discuss a new project that Manuel and his team have been working on. And this one is outside of the shop. In fact,
2: it's in the toilet. One of my favorite projects ever. The aim of the project was to take something that was incredibly banal, probably the most banal object that you can ever think of, which is a portable toilet, right? One of these toilets that you find in festivals, concerts and events and so on, right? And make it something unique and beautiful, right? And print it in a single piece. So it's a three and a half meter tall toilet cabin, including a a separation toilet that works much more uh, efficiently. And I have the entire body of the capsule and 90% of the elements printed just in one go, out of recycled plastic.
0: That's incredible. And with that, again, that in-situ robot, printing it where you needed the toilet to be used. Yes. Yes.
2: Potentially it could be that uh, if you are uh, for example setting up a a festival right Uh, you bring the robot or a few robots uh, a few months before and you start printing toilets there to have it ready so there's no more transport than just getting a robot probably from the closer city and then just equip it and start printing you know as many toilets as you need.
0: Would you then melt them down after back into the pellets would that be a possibility as well?
2: Yes, you can. So the plastic that we use then is then uh, not only recycled, but also recyclable, right? So you can shred it and then transform it again into pellets and get it back to the process. Of course, it loses a certain percentage of the quality, right? So you need to always identify which kind of plastic or how many times it has been recycled for which kind of objects. So every time you recycle it, it loses only a 1% of its properties which makes it usable like five, 10 times. I mean, of course, we've, we've never yet heard of anyone who wanted to get one of our chairs and then uh, <laughs> s- thread it and recycle it and change it. But it is good that that possibility is out there. So you do have a, a circular economy completely set up. Uh, hopefully no one will ever hate our product so much to <laughs> thread it and transform it into something different. Another
0: of my favourite episodes, gosh, I really do love making this podcast, was about food. And especially because we got to meet some dumpling-serving robots. And it was a real insight, this food episode, into how robots are deployed not only at the restaurant-facing aspect, but also when you look at the farming. And there is no doubt that robots can play an absolutely huge role when it comes to agriculture, like the ones from the small robot company. And I spoke to Ben Scott Robinson from the small robot company about their incredible robots that can scan the field and make suitable adjustments and totally change the relationship that a farmer has with their field. But that is not all ben thinks they could also provide a key solution for the future of farming
3: farming isn't farming you know if you are farming at things like um, leafy greens or vegetables or things like that it's a very very different process to what, what we're doing and has very different requirements and when you're talking about things like now uh, um, or particularly sort of soft fruit or tree fruit and you're getting into things where there's a high labor shortage like picking and then there is a huge amount of potential there. And we're very excited about the companies that are doing that. That is not our space. And we, we, we will never be looking to go there. But there are some incredibly good companies that are looking at the space too. For me, I think the, the really exciting thing is when you can start to bolt all these together. You know, when you as a farm can start being really diverse in your thinking. Because if you think about it, a farm owner is the manager or the owner of, in the UK, certainly, a multi-million pound business, even if they're only making a few thousand pounds a year because the margins are so tight, you know, it's a multi-million pound business in terms of value, et cetera. When you can help those farmers to be able to take the step back and instead of doing the low-level jobs you know like driving a tractor like diesel maintenance like you know all the things which you know in any other multi-million pound business the owner would not be doing and can start to think strategically about how that farm works and start to link up the technologies and the capabilities to be able to make all that work together whether that's having a really diverse rotation whether that's bringing in tree crops for for fruit in some places or what they call agroforestry so literally having trees whether they're fruit trees or non-fruit trees in amongst the crop plants as well. Well, um, or even just being more vertically enhanced or, or, or vertically integrated. So being able to, instead of produce wheat, produce flour or bread or chapatis or gin or beer or biscuits, or whatever it is. The value of that farm and the money the farmer can make increases. Also, the number of people that farmer can hire goes up and the diversity to those people goes up. So you start to bring skills back into the countryside. You start to make farmers be far more broad in their outlook in terms of what they're doing. Uh, And you start to bring down and shorten those supply chains uh, to make it much simpler to be able to produce high quality goods of all sorts anywhere. And you're not reliant on these global supply chains to be able to make it work. So for me, I think that's the really exciting thing. And we know that we're a part of that. But we know that there are lots and lots of other elements that need to go together to make that happen.
0: And in a way, all of this, yes, there's a sustainability angle, but it makes it more attractive to that up and coming generations that need to to nurture the farms, because that's more in the mindset of where we're at in terms of job roles.
3: Exactly that. In fact, we were talking to a Chinese group in in Hong Kong a few years ago. And one of the things that really excited them was this prospect, you know, in the UK, average age of a farmer is 59. In China and East Asia generally, it's you know it's getting close to 70 in some cases. Kids do not want to be working in like the incredibly manual process of rice production or or using sort of paddy fields, which is very difficult to get any technology into. If you can make it interesting for young people to be on farms So if you make an interesting combination of technology and marketing and creativity and you know and the environment and all these things which can sort of stimulate minds and and become this sort of never-ending learning process then then younger people will engage they'll come onto the farms and they will they will start bringing their own ideas and I'm sure they'll look at what we're doing now and go oh do you remember that incredibly hokey time when we were talking about only using robots for this or or whatever it is And, and that I find very exciting
0: really big thinking there by Ben and it just goes to show how robotics and automation can potentially change industries that have been going on for hundreds if not thousands of years and sticking with my favourite subject food and we also heard about the possibilities of sustainable packaging using renewable fibre materials but that is not the only way to make these planet-friendly packaging products. I've now got a bonus interview for you with Alex Garden, who is founder of the sustainability solutions company Zoom, who are using agricultural waste to make food packaging.
4: All right, so Zoom is a sustainability solutions company. We're operating a system now globally that sequesters carbon into not hydrocarbons now that is a huge agenda. And so it's a bit complicated how we do it. So let me explain the, the way our business works. So we operate a marketplace on two sides. And on the one side, we provide services to the largest brands in the world. So um, food companies and uh, retailers, etc. So for those companies, we do everything necessary for them to start with something they use today that's uh, plastic or EPS foam, and to end up with something which is made from a sustainable input with a low carbon footprint manufacturing process and a sustainable end of life story. So that typically means it's made from agricultural waste with very efficient factories built in countries with a short supply chain and then a home compostable end of life. Doing that and providing those products to brands at prices they can afford, that's already a huge complexity. It involves chemistry, material science, supply chain, Testing, certification, quality, labs, standards, factory trials. It's an enormous amount of work, and that's great. But the problem with that side of the business is that when we're successful, and we are now in 26 countries around the world, the leadership of those brands uh, turn to us and say, fantastic, now we need a billion a year of those to start, and we can't take any supply chain risk. And that leads me to the other side of our business, where we design Manufacture and sell the most advanced fiber thermoforming equipment and whole factory level solutions. And these are giant $100 million plus factories that convert locally available agricultural waste through a complex manufacturing process that produces products that perform as well as plastic at prices that brands can afford. And these are in huge categories like trays that you see protein shipped in, cups for beverages and food coffee lids, scoops, uh, we make scoops for, uh, that impra- replace injection molded plastic scoops, and frankly, hundreds of other things. And collectively, uh, we're replacing billions of pieces of plastic a year, and that's a growing number. And we're doing it uh, for some of the biggest brands in the world. It's really exciting.
0: My chin is on the floor, as you've been saying that, because that is a huge scope. It just seems to make perfect sense when you're saying it. But obviously, there's a reason this hasn't done before. And I assume this hasn't been easy for you to do. What sort of challenges have you come up against along the way?
4: Well, look, first, to pay respect to the people who've come before us. I mean, f- fiber thermal has been around for a long time. The real uh, innovation for, for us was making the process of manufacturing these products significantly faster, operating at much larger scale, helping contribute to, and working with some of the largest companies in the world, uh, chemistry companies in the world, helping contribute to uh, huge advances in the performance of molded fiber that make it more like plastic. And then coming up with an economic model, which makes it possible to deploy large amounts of factory apparatus quickly, right? Because single use plastics, are a $320 billion annual business. And if you can believe this, we've produced more plastic humans have in the last 10 years than we did in the last 100 years. It's important for us to get grounded in the scope. We're talking about hundreds of billions of pieces a year of plastic that are being produced. And the sad fact is that less than 6% of that plastic actually finds its way into a managed waste stream. So the rest of it is, is totally unmanaged. So uh, the challenge of, of replacing it and not just making a small impact, right? Molded fiber historically has been about five to twelve billion of the total picture. Not just a small impact, but really going after the whole single-use plastic picture and trying to replace it, in, you know, in our lifetime. That requires massive innovation, and, and that's what we do. So I want to make sure that people don't mistakenly think that we claim to have invented the technology. That's not true. But what we did is we create a justification to bring it massive commercial scale and make it much faster and much higher performance.
0: And is this where robots come into it, yes?
4: Yeah, well, robots and other forms of automation. So our factories contain, on average, they started around 48 of our processing machines. Each one of those machines can process the theoretical maximum of two tonnes of material per day. So in a 48-machine factory, it's about 100 tonnes a day of processing. And to put things into perspective, A factory of that size depending on what it's making produces between 1 billion and 4 billion pieces a year of packaging which if you want to think about that differently that's between 1 billion and 4 billion pieces of not plastic or another way of looking at that is 100 tons a day of not plastic which sounds like a really big number until you consider how much we produce as humans and and how much work we have to do to replace that
0: And because robotics is at the heart of this production, it's just completely scalable, right?
4: Yeah. We sell our products today in 26 countries around the world. Part of the key to creating a way to scale this quickly was to move away from the historical paradigm, which was a bespoke factory, And to to a paradigm that's actually been established in the semiconductor industry, which is what they call fab. You know, it's a copy exact factory within the four walls. So our factories are effectively fabs, right? And whether you're building one in Guatemala or South Korea or Serbia, it looks basically the same way. This means that the amount of bespoke planning work that we would have to do normally when we would put a, a big um, industrial apparatus like this in the ground is dramatically reduced and that helps us go faster. Yeah, it, it really wouldn't be possible to operate factories at this scale with the types of yields and throughputs that we're discussing uh, without a huge focus on robotics, other forms of automation, computer vision, material handling and, and a massive volume of sensors and it all works together in one Gigantic robotic circus, uh, but without that, it was it wouldn't be possible to do this.
0: Next, we are putting down the packaging and picking up the paintbrush, sort of. In our art episode, if you think back, we explored the fascinating collision of cutting-edge technology and creativity, and I loved this seemingly juxtaposition of creativity against what is normally thought of a a logical way of thinking when it comes to robotics and automation. Now, we ended our art episode with the amazing Pindar Vanarman, an artist who uses robots and AI to help create his paintings. Along with his process and how he has taught his robots over the years, I spoke to Pindar about his thoughts for the future of robot artists. So where does he think it is all going?
5: Alright, so for the future of robot artists, it's actually that's a great question. Eventually there will be a robot artist. I think soon, within 10 years. Okay, there will be a robot artist. There will be a sentient artist. That's a robot that makes art. I think what I think is fascinating about that is I don't think it'll make art for us. I think it'll make art for itself and other sentient robots. And the same way that different cultures have different arts that appeals to it, you know, appeals to that culture, these robots are just gonna start making art that we could care less about. Maybe it was, maybe it's sounds at frequencies we don't even hear because we're not machines or, or maybe it's like electrical pulses. The art they make isn't even music, it's just electrical pulses that, you know, do something to their chips that we can't that is aesthetically pleasing who knows what it's going to be but it may not be on the same bandwidth as the art that we enjoy there will be interesting moments where there will be an artist that may become popular maybe me because i've been robots friends for so long they're like you know all these sentient robots get together and it's like yeah that Pindar, he's a great artist to get into we like you know there's oh, what i'm trying to say is there might be artists that cross the divide of ai and human experience so that humans and AI enjoy the art. There might be a robot artist that decides it wants to make that kind of art. But, but in general, when we have sentient robots and we have robot artists, the art's not going to be anything like we expect. It may not even be appealing to us. It's going to be for other robots because the motivation of an artist is to like express something, to share something with other people. If you're a robot artist, are you going to try and share stuff with other humans? with other robots, other people like you, you know. I'm looking forward to it cuz I think I think it'll be amazing. And I think it's going to happen before we realize it happens. Like we're going to we're going to see something and it'll be maybe a couple of years before humans realize it was a piece of art.
0: It has been such a fascinating series. I have loved interviewing these experts on these intricate details of these different industries that are using robotics in their own way to help themselves become more sustainable. Now, for our final word of this series, we go back to Mark Segura, president of ABB's robotic division and he spoke in our second episode and he covered ABB's efforts in sustainability and how they see themselves not just as a company with their own climate goals but also as an enabler for companies and industries around the globe to also become more sustainable. What's exciting Mark the most about working in robotics and automation?
6: wow so many things uh, Fran. but if i could uh, summarize in one is really one what is convergence conversions of opportunities because this decade ahead of us is the decade of the highest technology development ever so robotics will have the chance to use enormous amount of new tools and technologies to bring new value to the to the robots And at the same time, the conversions with the needs of the society in terms of robotics, needs to tackle climate changes, needs to tackle shortage of labor and talent, needs to really rebuild the workforce to elevate the nature of work and make everything more sustainable from an environmental standpoint, but the business standpoint. So the conversions of technology and opportunity that robotics can solve is really a a once-in-a-lifetime exciting opportunity.
0: What a great time to work in this industry, because basically what you're saying to me is you've been working on these answers for decades, and now people are asking the questions of which you are
6: the answers to. Absolutely. On one hand, we are realizing that we were doing things that went beyond what we thought the impact was, but also at the same time, we see a tremendous gap in front of us that we can continue to develop ourselves to even be more impactful for society.
0: The brilliant Mark Zagora there with a fantastic vision of the future and highlighting the importance of robotics in our strive for a more sustainable planet. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode and also this series. A massive thank you to Shivy Jervis, Manuel Garcia, Ben Scott Robinson, Alex Garden, Pindavan Armen, and Mark Zagora. Thank you so much for joining us throughout this series. I hope you have found it as awe-inspiring and interesting and as eye-opening as I have. I'm Fran Scott, and the Robot Podcast is a Fresh Air production for ABB by Izzy Clark and Jack Claramont. If you want to find out more about robotics at ABB, there's a link in the show notes. And remember to follow or subscribe now for free, wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.
5: Part of the ABB Decoded series.